Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the luncheon organized by Hong Kong Policy Research Institute and Neutron Yewa Education Network. The luncheon will start in two minutes. Please switch your mobile phone to silent mode. Thank you. We have also arranged a simultaneous interpretation from English to Mandarin. If you wish to have a headset, please raise your hand. 各位来宾您好,欢迎出席由香港政策研究所及药中药华教育网络举办的午餐会。午餐会即将开始,即将您的手机电话换至静音模式,谢谢。我们同时也有安排普通话翻译,如果有需要的话,请举手。Today, we're delighted to have Mr. Paul Zhe, JP Solicitor, Executive Deputy Chairman, Hong Kong Policy Research Institute, a member of Legislative Council of Hong Kong, give the opening remarks as well as our facilitator for the Q&A session. Mr. Zhe has close to 40 years of practicing experience as a barrister and solicitor. He has been a member of the Legislative Council of Hong Kong since 2008, initially for the tourism functional constituency, and since 2012 for the Kowloon East geographical constituency, and since 2021 for the electoral constituency. Now may I invite Mr. Zed to come up on the stage. Mr. Zed, please. Hi, everyone. Just a quick advertisement about the uh, Hong Kong Policy Research Institute before I start. The institute is a non-profit making an independent public policy think tank set up in 1995 in anticipation of China's resumption of sovereignty over Hong Kong in 1997. The primary objective of the HAPRI is to contribute through conducting public researchers and publishing effective and pragmatic proposals and recommendations towards the successful implementation of the one country, two systems in Hong Kong. So much for the uh, introduction. Now let's come back to our talk today, the speaker today. To fully comprehend the uh, accomplishments of our uh, honorable speaker today, and in particular the uh, wisdom and insights behind these accomplishments, I think we have to go back to a bit of history. Uh, Professor Mababani, Kishore Mababani, he prefers to address him as Kishore, so I will do that, Kishore. Was born in 1948 to two Hindu Sindhi parents who were forced in 1947 to move from Pakistan to Singapore. That's how there was this split between Hindu India and Islamic Pakistan. Where he, in Singapore, where he was born and bred, he had the opportunity of learning from really great masters, like he mentioned in his books, including, of course, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, Go Keng Sui, and Res Rajaratnam. And from these mentors, Kishore learned to formulate any long-term strategy to frame the right questions. That is the first step. And I believe it's uh, Mr. Roger Ratnam who told him, in formulating these questions, you have to think the unthinkable. And in uh, Kishore's own words, he has these unusual cultural quirks. 
He has this uh, cultural connection with uh, diverse societies in Asia, where half of humanity lives from Tehran to Tokyo. He's connected with over one billion Hindus in South Asia. Nine out of ten South Asian states have Indic cultural base. And as a child, Kicho read and learned stories from the Ramayana, I hope I pronounced it correctly, and the Mahabharata, two major Sanskrit epics of ancient India, the importance of which is comparable in the context of world civilization to the Bible, the Quran, the works of Homer, or works of Shakespeare. He also learned to read and write Sindhi with uh, personal Arabic script, and therefore acquired this uh, connection with the Iranian culture. And indeed, uh, the name Mahabharbani is from the root word Mabu, meaning the beloved. And he also acquired this cultural affinity with China, Korea, Japan, via Buddhism, which, as we all know, has its roots in Hinduism and was originated in India. And Kishore, as a child, was often taken to pray in Buddhist and Hindu temples. Now about his academic uh, background, as we all know, he's got his uh, BA, having first honor, in the National University of Singapore, where he studied philosophy. And from this discipline, Kishore said he acquired the skill and practice of breaking down a major question into smaller questions all the time. He had his Master of Arts in Philosophy also from the Dalhousie University in Canada. And in 1991-92, he was Fellow of the Center for International Affairs at Harvard. And from 2004 to 2017, he was the Founding Dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy of the National University of Singapore. Uh, one would imagine a university or a institute named after a living icon then, the sort of pressure that Hishaw uh, would have had. And at, in 2019, he was a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, or he became a member. And after his academic studies, uh, he launched into a lifelong career in, in diplomacy. And he became a, life, a career diplomat during the years from 1971 to 2004, almost like 33 years. He had postings in Malaysia, in Cambodia, during the wartime days, in fact, 1973 to 74, and in Washington, D.C. And in 84 to 89, he was the ambassador to the United Nations. And in the, after, after that, he went back to Singapore and became or served as the permanent secretary at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. In 1998, he had his second stint as ambassador to the UN, and indeed, in 2001-2, he was president of the United Nations Security Council. So altogether, he had 10 years in the UN. And incidentally, I think he mentioned his first visit to China was 1980, when China was beginning to have its open policies and reform. And since then, he's been back to China for many, many times, over 30 times, I guess. Yeah. And about, um, after Kishore 
having this uh, illustrious career in um, international diplomacy, he went back to Singapore and started to uh, establish the uh, Lee Kuan Yew School of, uh, uh, that we mentioned about and began writing substantively and substantially. He wrote book after book, nine in ten years, I believe, uh, with his uh, very first one in 2001, while being, uh, still being the uh, UN Security Council president, a very provocative name, Can Asia Think? And uh, Kisha likes to joke about it and, and, and say maybe in one of the next books they can use the title, Can Asia Joke? Um, in 2008, uh, this is another very provocative book that he wrote, which is called The uh, New Asian Hemisphere. Uh, in, in fact, it's written during the time when he was dean to the uh, Lee Kuan Yew School. And in the introduction of the book, we have references to uh, comments made about him, made about his book, such as the anti-Western polemic by the economists. That was a time, that was a time when the, the West is still very hostile to uh, Kishore's writing, of course. And in fact, in Kishore's own words, he said, out of sheer folly for me to write this book while I was building a new school of public policy. And there he said he, he was looking forward to normal life to play golf again on weekends after that book. But, you know, <laughs> uh, sometimes we do not plan our everything. So, in the, the one that really had a big hit in his publication is the one in 2020, which is called Has China Won? The title of which, is, of course, is very provocative. And, uh, in fact, Kicho uh, has the practice of having these books in a question mark form. So asking the right questions, asking the provocative questions all the time. And in fact, it's a very interesting book full of uh, interesting anecdotes, including the one I find very interesting. It's the one that Kijo was having lunch, one-on-one -on -one lunch, uh, sometime in March 2018 with Dr. Henry Kissinger in a midtown Manhattan restaurant on a snowy, stormy day, all the details. And there was, it was then and there that Kijo was alerted to the to one big strategic mistake made by the U.S. administration. And that was the launching in 2018 of the contest with China without first developing a comprehensive and global strategy to deal with China. And in fact, this big message is featured prominently in Kissinger's uh, later book on China. And in this book, we uh, learn about uh, comments or observations like the textures and chemical of the world have changed, of which most Americans are not aware. And a reference was made to the, um, out of the 193 national states in UN, which country, whether it's the US or China, is swimming in the same direction as the majority of the other 191 countries? Good question. And he said, in the era of nuclear weapons, superpower primacy is likely to be determined in the economic sphere, not military sphere. Reminds us of uh, Bill Clinton's uh, electoral slogan, is the economy stupid? And provocatively, Kishore said in his book that he were, if he were asked to advise President Xi Jinping 
on what to do with uh, this competition with the U.S. And his, uh, one of his uh, prominent answers, overestimate rather than underestimate the American strengths. And the objective of the book, as it were, is to blow away the thick fog of misunderstanding that has enveloped the Sino-American relationship. And to borrow the words of Sun Ji, know your enemy and know yourself. You need not fear the result of a hundred wars. And obviously the Americans not doing the right thing, uh, taking heed of uh, Hichor's observations. And in this latest open access publication, free for all publication, the Asian 21st century, we find very interesting subheading or topics, very provoking, including of special interest to Hong Kong people here, perhaps. Hong Kong people must understand they've become a pawn of football in, in, in the book. And uh, there was this comment that Hong Kong never developed the art of managing political disputes. Other topics include why the Indian way may be the world's best bet for moral leadership. And also, this heading, can India become stronger than China? Yes, it can. You've got to hear Kishore telling us why. And in fact, instead of framing the contest or competition between US and China as being one of democracy versus autocracy, Kishore believes that it is really a question of plutocracy versus meritocracy. And it's really a, a question of development of the Chinese culture, uh, which is uh, the U.S. is up against, not just the Communist Party itself. The CCP, Kishore suggests, should read, instead of Chinese Communist Party, should read Chinese Civilization Party. Now, a quick rundown on the Kishore's uh, honors list before I go. 1995 is honorary on doctor of philosophy of uh, Dalhousie University. 2019 member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, as I mentioned before. He is now a distinguished at the Asia Research Institute of the National University of Singapore, uh, a name card that uh, Kishore carries around these days. And in 20, 2005. He was listed as top 100 public intellectuals in the world by the, uh, as we all know, famous foreign policy and prospect magazines. 2010 to 11, he was listed top 100 global thinkers of the foreign policy magazine again. 2014, top 50 world thinkers of the prospect magazine. And in that connection, I was wondering whether Kishore might like to consider becoming an honorary professor in Hong Kong, seeing that Jack Ma has just become one of to bring his real experience to his courses. Now, before I welcome uh, Kishore to the stage, let me quote from him again. Prime Minister or former Prime Minister of India, Mamohan Singh, used to say, advise the world, look east. Prime Minister Narendra Modi advised the world, act east. Kishore advised the world, learn from the east. And as an avatar of the renaissance of the East, if I put it that way. We look forward to having uh, Kishore to keep reminding us not only to think the unthinkable, but also to speak the unspeakable. Now let's welcome uh, Kishore Mapu, the beloved professor and ambassador to the stage. Thank you very much.
I, I must say that that's by far the most comprehensive introduction I have ever, ever had about my life and I'm very happy to discover things about my life I've forgotten. <laughs> Especially things I had said. But thank you, Paul. That was a very warm and generous uh, welcome. I also want to thank uh, Professor Paul Yip and Mrs. Betty Chan for hosting me here. Uh, I've been amazed by the hospitality I get to Hong Kong every time I come. I'm glad that the COVID nightmare is over. And I better warn you, I'm going to come, come, going to, come to Hong Kong very often <laughs> and uh, share my, my, my thoughts with you. Now, I also understand that I stand between you and lunch. <laughs> and you know, if you give a former UN ambassador a microphone, before you know it, three hours have passed. <laughs> so your lunch was coming at 3.30, I guess. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I will be uh, brief. I'll try to speak about, for about 30 minutes or so and share with you my thoughts uh, on this question. Can China uh, outcompete? Uh, the U.S. And frankly, uh, as you all know, this is the biggest question of our time. There is absolutely no doubt that the U.S.-China contest will accelerate over the next 10 years. This is a certainty. What we don't know, of course, is going to be the outcome. Therefore, it's important for us, psychologically, politically, to prepare for this contest and also to see what we can do uh, to mitigate it uh, in some ways. So what I propose to do in my remarks is I'll divide them into three parts. In part one, I'll first try to explain why this contest will accelerate. Two, what are the relative strengths of China and the US in this competition? And I want to add that not since human history began have you had two powers of the size, scale and of China and the United States competing with each other. This is the greatest geopolitical struggle since human history began. And then, of course, I'll, as I said, I'll try and in conclude by saying what can we do to mitigate this contest. So let me begin in part one. Why am I confident that this contest will accelerate? Because there, there are deep structural forces driving this contest. And the first one is, of course, what I call the uh, iron law of geopolitics, which has been around for 2,000, 3,000 years, which is that whenever the world's number one emerging power, which today is China, is about to overtake the world's number one power, which today is the United States of America, the world's number one power always pushes down the world's number one emerging power. And it happens time and time again. And, you know, uh, I was actually in the U.S., Paul, a few weeks ago, uh, and I went back to my old hunting grounds in Harvard, uh, and I met Professor Graham Allison again, a friend of mine. And as you know, he's written a book called Destined for War, which explains why throughout history the established powers will push down 
the rising uh, powers. And so what the United States therefore is doing in trying to stop China from becoming number one is predictable behavior. But the only question is whether or not it's rational behavior. And here we assume that we as human beings are now so well educated. We have bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, PhDs, and we think that we no longer behave like primitive animals, that we can rise above our animal instincts and learn to live with peace in one another, with one another. And the shocking thing is that when it comes to geopolitics, all that intelligence and sophistication disappears and you get raw power contests coming out. And to me, I was just in the U.S. a few weeks ago, as I said, it's actually quite striking since I wrote the book in 2020, where actually, I actually predicted. <laughs> I said, this contest will accelerate. I said it when I was writing it four years ago. But even having predicted it, I was still surprised by the intensity of the conviction in the United States that China must be stopped. And we can discuss that in the Q&A as to what's driving this very strong conviction. And it's not just gripped the establishment, it's now gripped popular opinion, and you can have little accidents can make a difference. Uh, as you know, uh, earlier this year, a balloon drifted into the United States. I told myself, what's the, what's the big deal? A balloon has only got hot air. So what damage can it do? But actually, to my surprise, when I was in the U.S. a few weeks ago, a balloon get did a lot of damage because what to many ordinary Americans was a distant threat over there, China. Suddenly, for 24 hours a day, they were watching TV and they saw this balloon over American skies and they said, China is no longer over there. China is over here watching us. So the psychological impact of Balloon Gate, I completely underestimated. And as a result of it, the surveys now show that popular opinion against China within the U.S. body politic is at an all-time high. And when I spoke to a very uh, senior former policymaker uh, about the U.S.-China contest, he said, Kishore, today in the U.S., the Democrat law uh, policymakers or lawmakers and the Republican lawmakers are leapfrogging over each other to say, I'm more anti-China than you. I'm more anti-China than you. And no one says, I am pro-China. <laughs> or even that there may be a different course on China. That's why you can see, I believe, that this contest will accelerate by the same time, in addition to what I call the uh, iron law of geopolitics, as you can tell watching the debates on U.S.-China, 
in the media and elsewhere. There is an emotional dimension to it, which is very difficult to speak about because it's politically incorrect to speak about it. But at the same time, uh, it's real. And this emotional dimension is what I call the fear of the yellow peril uh, in the Western imagination. People don't speak about it, but it's real. And if anyone doubts it, as I document in my book, as China won, uh, the United States Congress actually passed a law called the Chinese Racial Exclusion Act in the 1890s. I recently learned that act was only repealed in the 1940s. For 50 years, there was an act called the Chinese Racial Exclusion Act. So it's there, that emotional dimension. And then also there is the ideological dimension to this contest that's also driving it. Because the Americans believe, with, with, I must say with a lot of sincere conviction, that their mission is to protect democracy in the world. And if a non-democratic regime emerges and succeeds, they don't just see it as a threat to democracy in the United States, they see it as a threat to democracy globally. And that's, that's why Joe Biden portrays it as a democracy versus autocracy contest. And of course, by framing it that way, it's also one way of getting popular support from the American public because they believe that their mission is also to defend democracy. And so it's a combination of all these forces means that there is no doubt that this contest will accelerate. But what's interesting, and this brings me to part two of my remarks, is that even though the United States has launched this contest to stop China from overtaking the U.S., no one has actually asked whether or not, this is why, as I said, as you said, Paul, uh, I got this insight from Henry Kissinger, the United States actually doesn't have a comprehensive strategy on how to deal uh, with China, and the actions that are taken are often not consistent, and sometimes not, they don't seem to be part of a coherent strategy. But despite that, there is no doubt that the United States is a formidable actor. In fact, the United States is clearly the most powerful society that humanity has created since human history began. The scope and power of the United States is amazing. And that's why in my book, in my fictional memo to President Xi Jinping, I say it's better for the United States to, uh, for, better for China to overestimate United States rather than underestimate United States. And I'll try to explain why as we go down the various dimensions of this contest. Now you all know that this contest is multi-dimensional. You know, and the most obvious area where you might expect this contest to accelerate, and that's the way actually uh, it has happened uh, since human history began, most great powers, when they want to resolve a contest, at the end of the day, choose to, choose to do it on the military battlefield. And frankly, until about uh, the World War II, whenever there was a big contest between two great powers, at the end of the day, it would erupt into a military conflict, and whoever won the military conflict would have won. Right? 
But today, this is the only great benefit of having nuclear weapons. Uh, because of nuclear weapons, when you have a contest between two great powers, both of whom has nuclear weapons, you don't get a winner and a loser. You get a loser and a loser. And that's why, even though the United States and Soviet Union had a massive geopolitical contest uh, lasting over 40 years, they never came close to uh, fighting a war directly with each other. Having said that, there were some close shaves, huh? uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, both sides understood you don't fight each other directly, right? And so that, at the end of the day, I don't think there will be an all-out military war between the United States and China. But I have to give a small exception here, and the exception is the issue of Taiwan. Because there is, you know, there may, there, in, in, in life there, we have mostly uncertainties. But some areas we have certainties. It's a certainty that the U.S.-China contest will accelerate. And it's also a certainty that the day after Taiwan declares independence, for whatever reason, China will declare war. 100% certainty. Right? No Chinese leader... Uh, after China's century of humiliation, can see the permanent secession of Taiwan from China. And so it's very important for us to know this to prevent war over Taiwan. And here, one of my big worries is that the people of Taiwan are not being well educated by their leaders on how dangerous the situation in Taiwan can be and how in this very rough and dangerous games of geopolitics, and as you know, geopolitics in some ways is like a game of chess. In a game of chess, you easily sacrifice a pawn if it gives you an advantage. Taiwan is a pawn. Taiwan can be sacrificed. And the people of Taiwan must get to know this, because if they don't, they'll be sacrificed. And again, in the Q&A, we can discuss some of that. And so, at the end of the day, the best thing we can do on Taiwan is to preserve the status quo. But, as you can see, with the visits by Nancy Pelosi uh, to Taiwan, there are some forces who want to create trouble across the Taiwan Straits. And uh, even Tom Friedman of New York Times described her visit as dangerous, reckless, and irresponsible. And that was it. So the Taiwan issue is a dangerous issue, and that could start a conflict. But apart from that, I think there will be no conflict between the United States and China. So where will the conflict, uh, where will the contests play out? Well, I would say it will be in the economic dimension, the political dimension, social dimension, cultural dimension. And I think probably the most important dimension will be the economic dimension. Because at the end of the day, one of the clear indicators of who has won this contest is who has the bigger, bigger economy, Right? And the United States has had the world's largest economy 
since the 1890s, I think, 130 years, and was confident that he would always have the world's largest economy. But the projections show now that China can overtake the United States. But here too, by the way, what's interesting, about 10 years ago, there were so many projections saying that United States, that China would overtake United States by the uh, late 2020s in four to five years from now. Now no one makes that projection. So United States has also bounced back significantly, right? And what's remarkable is that even though the U.S. economy has had many challenges, the 2008-2009 financial crisis, the COVID crisis, the U.S. economy continues to perform very well. And recently when I was reading The Economist, uh, I was very surprised to come across this statistic, yeah? That, you know, the, the, uh, the seven most, I guess, among the seven largest economies of the world are the members of the G7, right? The United States, Germany, France, UK, Italy, uh, I'm not sure whether Spain is there, EU, members of G, Japan is there. And the, the, it's a remarkable statistic is that since the G, when the G7 was founded, the United States share of the GN, G7 GNP was only uh, 40%. Now, the U.S. share of the G7 has grown to 60%. That's amazing. It shows the U.S. economy is still growing very powerfully. So even though the growth rates of China are clearly faster, this is normal, country with lower per capita income will of course grow faster uh, than a country with a higher per capita income. The U.S. economy has been performing uh, very well. And, and if you read, of course, the Anglo-Saxon media, uh, and here, just as an aside, let me say, I find that whenever I have to do research on U.S.-China issues, don't trust the Anglo-Saxon media. <laughs> They will tell you everything that is wrong about China, but they'll never tell you one thing that's right about China. <laughs> and if you read the Anglo-Saxon media, you always keep wondering, why hasn't China collapsed yet? <laughs> uh, because they keep predicting the collapse of China. And of course, the latest prediction is that uh, China uh, can no longer succeed uh, economically. Uh, in fact, when I was recently in the U.S. talking to various people, uh, in fact, the, some of the, this is public information, I'm not revealing anything. Uh, even some of the more enthusiastic, uh, bulls on the Chinese economy, uh, I'll give you two examples. Very good economists, and very good people actually. Stephen Roach of Yale and Bill Overhold of Harvard. They used to be China bulls, and now they become China bears. And the reason why they become China bears, is because they believe that uh, China has retreated uh, from its pro-reform agenda that it used to have. China is moving towards greater control of the uh, economy, state economy, and therefore uh, China, which used to be a dynamic, thriving economy, can no longer get high growth rates. And that, that seems to be the way the opinion is drifting in the Anglo-Saxon uh, media's evaluation. Uh, they may well be right, you can never tell, 
But I I wouldn't place my bets on that. Because I do think that the Chinese leaders are acutely aware that this contest against U.S. will accelerate. And the Chinese leaders are acutely aware that if China falls behind in the economic competition, China has lost the game. And so come what may, they have to revive the economic growth of China for the sake of sheer national survival. And of course, as you know, there's all kinds of theories as to whether or not the reformers won or the reformers lost uh, after the last party congress. You can have debates all night on it. But I, I do think that the reform agenda of China will continue. And of course, the, you, have, you have to, at the end of the day, look at evidence. And here, I think the best evidence of China's commitment to reform is how the Chinese economy still open, remains open to the rest of the world. And here, when future historians write about this contest, they will be puzzled that on the one hand is the United States that taught the world the benefits of the theories of free trade and so on and so forth, right? All the theories we learned from the Americans and the Westerners. I mean, Adam Smith was not Chinese. But yet today, amazingly, the United States is incapable of signing an FTA with any country, and China is prepared to sign an FTA with anybody. And the consequence of that is that the global trade with China has grown dramatically. Today, China is the world's number one trading power. The United States is behind. And 120 countries in the world do more trade with China. And, and, and if that trend continues, surely that would be a competitive advantage uh, for uh, China. And maybe later in the Q&A, Paul, I can give you some specific statistics also about uh, China and ASEAN and how that illustrates the changes that are happening. So clearly you can see that in the economic dimension, the United States has performed well, China has performed well, and therefore this is a race between two remarkable horses. And it's very difficult to say which horse is going to win this economic contest. Then we come to the political dimension. And here I would say, if you go to the United States and you say, who's going to win the contest between U.S. and China in the political dimension? You say, what's the contest? Democracies always win. As you know, and in theory they should. Democracies are open, flexible political systems, changing and adapting. If a leader doesn't perform, he's thrown out in the elections, a new leader comes in, and therefore democracies will always outperform an autocracy or a dictatorship. And so they say in the contest between the democracy in the United States and a communist party system in China, of course the democracy would win. And it's impossible 
to find anyone who questions that assumption in, in the United States. But here too, if you dig a bit deeper, as I tried to do in, I think, chapter 7 of my book, has China won. I say, functionally, if you study how the American political system operates and how the Chinese political system operates, beneath the surface, what you see is something quite different. So the United States, for example, functionally has gone from being a democracy towards becoming a plutocracy. Now, this is a very fundamental change. I want to emphasize I'm not the only one saying this, eh? The late Paul Volcker said this, the Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz says this, Martin Wolf says this, and the, the danger of becoming a plutocracy is that decisions are made in the society not to benefit 100% of the people, but to benefit the top 10 to 20% only. And the data therefore shows that in the United States, Actually, the United States is the only major developed country where the average income of the bottom 50% has remained stagnant for decades and uh, other social indicators indicate lots of problems in the society. Life expectancy has come down. This never happens in developed societies. And, uh, uh, you know, if you look at the poverty rates and uh, what Angus Deaton, the Nobel laureate, called deaths by despair, they're rising in the United States. So the United States, in that sense, is not a well-functioning democracy. And that's why, you, as a result, there being so much anger in the body politic. You get populism surfacing, Donald Trump winning the elections in 2016, and let's hope he doesn't win in 2024. <laughs> Unfortunately, the chances of him uh, winning are not zero. They're low, 20, 30% maybe, but they're not zero. So I just can't imagine coming back to, to Hong Kong to giving his speech when Donald Trump is president. <laughs> it would be a strange world if he comes back to us. So that's on the United States side. And on the Chinese side, functionally, the Chinese political system has become what I call a meritocracy. And meritocracy is one where the best people are chosen to serve in positions of leadership in the society. And uh, as you know, in the um, uh, United States, you can be completely unqualified and you can become president, exhibit a Donald Trump. Uh, but in, in China, it's impossible. In China, if you haven't run to, if you haven't run a province, if you haven't done some serious assignments, you will not be given greater responsibilities. So therefore, you can see that the quality of uh, leadership, and quite often the quality of mind of the leaders within the Chinese political system, is actually quite remarkable today. And, and so, therefore, instead of seeing, instead of it being a contest just purely between, between democracy and a communist party system, it's actually a contest between a meritocracy and a plutocracy. And then we have to see which society uh, performs better. 
And if you look at the social indicators, which are a very key indicator, you will see that the social indicators in many ways, uh, the, the societal improvements in China are quite remarkable and actually have been remarkable over the last 30 to 40 years. And China, as you know, has just more people out of poverty than any other human since human history began. So this is where, this is why the contest and the political dimension uh, is also uh, very complex. Now let me just race through, because I know the clock is ticking, uh, the other dimensions that, of course, I, I have to emphasize that what happens in the uh, science and technology dimension is also very, very critical. And, and here you can see that, in theory, China should have a numerical advantage. It has got 1.4 billion people. They can harvest the best brains from 1.4 billion people. China every year produces much greater number of scientists and engineers than the United States does. But amazingly, this is one area where the United States may have a major competitive advantage because the United States can harvest the best brains not just from 330 million people in the United States, but from 8 billion people around the world. And that's why some of the most successful American corporations are run by people not born in the United States. Uh, the Google is run by Sundar Pichai, born in India. Uh, Microsoft is run by Satya Nadella, uh, born in India. And you can see, therefore, it's a huge mistake uh, to underestimate the United States uh, in this dimension. And I can tell you, up to two, three years ago, when I used to go to conferences like this, everyone would say, hey, you know, on AI, China is obviously going to win. China has got access to a massive amount of data. Uh, they don't have controls on data. With a huge pool of data, China will win the race in AI. And then, of course, the United States produces chat GPT. <laughs> you know, this is the thing about United States. Okay? It does remarkable things. And so, again, in the contest in the science and technology dimension, it would be a mistake to think that one side or the other uh, will do very well. And that's where, clearly, some of the most intense competition will take place, and that's why you can notice that one of the things that the U.S. administration has actually created a clear policy is to deny China access to the best technology, and that's why the CHIPS Act was passed uh, recently. And there will be, by the way, other such measures coming. I, mean, I don't know which ones. <laughs> I, don't, I cannot spy inside what's going on in the U.S. government, but I have no doubt that more such measures will continue, and that's going to be a crucial dimension. So you can see, therefore, the contest will take place in dimension after dimension after dimension. So all this, let me, let me, let me, uh, and we can of course go into greater uh, elaboration on these points when we come to the Q&A uh, with Paul. But uh, I want to conclude by asking the question, uh, is there a wiser way of managing this U.S.-China contest? And I actually believe that there is a wiser way of managing it, this U.S.-China contest, and that is what I tried to do in the last chapter of my book, Has China Won? And to point out that in many ways, uh, in the area of geopolitics, we should recognize that we are no longer in the 19th century or the 20th century. 
where countries were, you know, separated by great distances and countries had independent destinies. Because the world has transformed dramatically. Now, how do I describe this uh, fundamental transformation of the world? Uh, I use a boat analogy. And what I say in the past, when 8 billion people lived in 193 separate countries, it was as though they were living in 93 separate boats. Right? If you're on a different boat, what happens in another boat doesn't matter. So if one boat catches COVID, the other boat won't catch COVID because COVID cannot travel from boat to boat. Right? But the world has shrunk. Today, when 8 billion people live in 193 separate countries, they're no longer living in 193 separate boats. They're living in 193 separate cabins on the same boat. You want proof? One cabin gets COVID. All 193 cabins get COVID. It's a small interdependent world. And the challenges that we face in the common boat are becoming far more important. Not just COVID. You have climate change. And climate change is going to accelerate. And no one country can solve climate change, right? You have to get, especially the two biggest countries, US and China, to cooperate. So there are now different imperatives that are pushing down on us. And therefore, I do hope that if we all speak out on this issue, the big message we should combine as humanity tell policymakers in both Beijing and Washington, D.C., the message we should say is that our common concerns as humanity today are far more important. Let's stop all these 19th century geopolitical struggles. Let's work together to save planet Earth. And then after we've done that, then we can go back to fighting again. Thank you very much. Mr. Mabubani. Ladies and gentlemen, the lunch will be served soon. The Q&A session will start in 30 minutes. Thank you.